Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Well, if you have your Bibles, go with me to James, James chapter 1. We're going to begin a series today that will take us through a few weeks in the book of James. As we look through James, James is a book of blueprints, so to speak. Uh, James gives us just the, the, just the raw thing of just how to live our Christian life. James doesn't get caught up in uh, deep theological questions. He doesn't get caught up into all the other things. He just says, hey, this is how you are to live the Christian life. Uh, It's been said that John uh, wrote about love, Paul wrote about faith, and James wrote about works. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to just dive into this book and and look at that. Well, this morning we're going to talk about experiencing joy. Now, let me ask you, think about what is it that brings joy to your life? Now, Webster defines joy as emotion that invokes happiness. Uh, It is something that, it's a state of happiness. It's a a source that causes us to to delight in. So what what makes you happy? What brings you joy? Uh, For people I know, there are some people who who find joy in golfing. They they like the extracurricular activity to golf. They, They enjoy being on a golf course with friends and playing. Others find happiness on a lake, uh, whether it's fishing or relaxing on the lake. Some like happiness that is on a beach. Uh, One of the things that my family did while we were were in California is went to what they say is the happiest place on earth. I cannot give you that as a testimony, okay? But I was there. Uh, What brings you joy? Uh, this week I was, I was at home and I was outside uh, washing my truck and my wife came to me and says, are you in your happy place? Because I enjoy washing my truck, and, or not just mine, but any car. Uh, and I don't know why, I just do. That's something that, that I, I can escape in and do. And yes, it has taken me two hours to wash one vehicle, but it's clean when it's done, all right? But what, what brings you joy? Well, as we open the, the letter James, we find that James talks about trials and tribulations, testing. In fact, in verse 2, as we'll read in just a moment, consider it great joy or pure joy, in some translations we'll say, when you face various trials. Joy when you face trials? Now, I don't know about you, but I think most people find joy when they escape trials, right? When, when we don't ever say this out loud in our small groups, but when we're talking a prayer request and somebody begins to talk about what they're going through, we never say it out loud, but we give a praise, Lord, thank you for not letting that happen to me. Lord, I give you all the credit. That's not going on with me. Praise the Lord, I don't have those problems. Again, that's never publicly said. But James says, great joy. 
when you face trials. This morning I want to talk about experiencing joy. If you have your Bibles and you're at James chapter 1, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and perfect word? Verse 12 verses. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brother and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For doubters is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the winds. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower in the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries the grass, its flowers fall off and its beauty appears, perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Would you pray with me? Father, in the next few minutes, would you just lead? Would you speak? May we hear your voice. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the big idea I want you to catch this morning as we, as we look at the first, first 12 verses. The reality of living by faith is demonstrated by a believer's response to adversity. Here's the thing. If you want to experience joy in your life, true joy comes through life and how you... Ad- Handle adversity reflects how well you understand where joy comes from. So James gives us points here. I want to give you five things that we find in this text that helps us point to understanding joy so that we can experience the joy that only comes from the Father. Whether it's in happy moments or in trials, These five things need to take place. First thing is, you have to understand your identity. Understand your identity. And James starts off in the text here, and he says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Let me give you a background. James is writing to, to believers who have left Jerusalem. They're all over the place. They've been scattered So he's sending this notice out to them. But James gives us his identity here, and he makes it very clear where his identity lies. 
James could have bragged about a number of things for his identity. James, the author of this, the, the writer, is the half-brother of Jesus. <clears throat> he could have said, I need a, give me a mint, I'm about to, <coughs> and you keep one in your pocket, how's that? James, James could have said, my identity is, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I'm the, I'm the one he grew up with. I spent my days as Jesus' half-brother. I know what it looked like. I know how he behaved. I was there. He blew the curve for all of us. He was always perfect. He always kept his room clean. He did everything right. He could have started his letter off that way. He could have started his letter off by saying, I'm James, a pastor. I pastor at the mother church in Jerusalem. I've got leaders and I know the scriptures. I'm a pastor. Listen to me what I've got to say. He could have started his letter that way. He could have started his letter by saying, Hi, I'm James. I'm an author. You're reading my work right here. Listen, I'm an author. I, I have special knowledge that I want to give you. You must listen to me. He could have done that. James was also an apostle. He could have said, listen, I'm an apostle. That means you listen. Let me share some things with you. But notice how James begins. He could have said he was a believer, but instead he begins to say, I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of God. That's the greatest title any person can have, is that they're a servant of God. That that identity there makes, says a lot about who we are. In fact, what's your identity? Where's your identity found? Would, would you say that uh, your identity is found in your job? That people know more about you because of what you do for a living. Your identity is found because you're a banker. You're a lawyer. You're a school teacher. What's your identity? Maybe there, there are some people who, who their identity is found in their children. You know, for those of you who have children... You understand that once children come into the world, nobody knows who you are. I, I remember in the early days with Drew, we'd go someplace and I'd walk into the room and somebody would go, oh, you're Drew's dad. They never asked me what my name is. I'm just Drew's dad. My identity was found in my son. Maybe you're here and your identity is not in your children, but in those who call you Papa, or Grammy, or Mimi, or Pops, or Nana, or whatever. You know, those are the ones who can get away with anything. They can talk you into about anything, and that's your identity. That you love to, to be able to spoil them and do whatever. That's who you are. That's your identity. Hear me very carefully. 
Those are all great identities. The Bible talks about how we are to work and make an honest day's living. But that should not be our greatest identity. And the Bible tells us that we're to love our family. And we see over and over the effects of family through the scripture. But that shouldn't be our greatest identity. In fact, Matt, uh, Jesus says this, these words in Matthew. He says, Lord, another of his disciples said to him, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Here's the thing. Jesus was very quick to say, your identity needs to be found in me. Not in, not in someone else, not in anything else but Christ alone. As a church, our identity has to be in Christ. We can have lots of things going on. We can have uh, a great ministry to children, students, to worship, senior adults. We can, we can do a lot. But if our identity is not rooted in Christ as servants of Christ, we're doing everything out of whack. Our identity must be rooted in being servants of Christ. There's no greater identity that we can have. James begins quickly and he lays it out. He helps us understand because he could have been identified in a number of ways and yet he chose servant of God. The second thing we learn in this text is that we've got to come to a realization that, that trials have a purpose. There's a reason we have trials. There's a reason we, we experience all these things in our life. God has a purpose for those things. Now let's, let's, let's understand this early about James. James holds no punches. He's very directed to the point. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He comes to the place and says, listen, you're going to face trials. Enjoy them, is what he says. Enjoy them. Look again with me at verses 2 and following. He says, consider it a great joy. Catch that. He didn't say just joy. Great joy or pure joy. Whenever you experience various trials... Because you know, and there's, there's this moment here, he is reminding them something they already know. This is not new information for the believers. They understand this. Because you know that testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Thank you, Greg. Trials have purposes. They, they're, they're a reason God gives them to us. There's a reason we go through them. You might be thinking, but why? why? Why do we have to go through them? God's not trying to break us. He's trying to mold us. He's got a purpose for us. So let me give you some ideas of what a trial is. Let me give you two, two ideas of a trial and two effects of a trial. The first idea of a trial is trials are for correction or for correction. T 
God uses trials to correct us, to get us back on path. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament. Jonah was called upon to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Jonah heard the word of the Lord. Jonah responded by going the opposite direction. And while he went to the opposite direction, he got on a boat, he left. God says, wait, 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 wait. Jonah, you need correcting. You need to be brought back to where you understand what's going on. So what does Jonah do? Or what does God do to Jonah? While he's on the ship, this storm comes up. These men who've been on the sea understand storms, but this storm was different. It was raging. They didn't know why. They began to do all sorts of things to try to help their situation. They come to Jonah. Do you know why? And Jonah finally confesses. And at first the men try to keep throwing things off, trying to, to save the ship and them. But it comes to a point where they decide, okay, Jonah, we're going to do it. And they throw Jonah overboard. You know the story, a great a big fish comes and takes, swallows Jonah. And it's while he's in the belly of the fish that he begins to find correction. Not repentance, but correction. God uses trials to correct our life. To bring us to a place back where we need to be. The other set of trials is a trial of perfection. Sometimes God wants to perfect our faith. He perfects our faith through a variety of ways. We read in Mark chapter 4, the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are, are on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep at the stern of the boat. Great storm comes up. The disciples, again, men who've been on the water, many of them, are afraid. They're so much afraid they, they wake Jesus up. Don't you care? We're perishing. Jesus stands up, rebukes the sand and the, the, the sea and the wind, and it go, goes away. And all of a sudden, the disciples begin to understand how great God is. Just how much Jesus has power over the wind and the wave. It's a moment of perfecting their faith, teaching them just who God is in a deeper level than what they already had. But trials have effects on you and I. There's two effects. The first one is it's an external effect. Externally, we, we go through trials. I think of Moses and in in leading the people through the promised land. You remember all the, the stories that Moses went through. The time he came down and found the golden calf, broke the, broke the Ten Commandments because of the frustration with the way the people acted. That's an external trial because it is people who are doing it to, to Moses. And so, you and I have external trials. It could be a loss of a job. Family problems. Financial problems. It could be all sorts of things. Physical health. Then we have the internal, the internal trials. <clears throat> like Jonah. Remember Jonah, we'll go back to him. Jonah, the reason he left and didn't want to go to Nineveh 
because he didn't like the people. He was prejudiced. He had an issue with the people, and he knew the people would repent. He didn't think they needed to go to heaven. He didn't think they needed God. So it was an internal trial that was affecting him. Now listen, external things can affect us internally, and internally can affect us externally. But internally, we can find ourselves facing with depression, anxiety, anger. And as we do all those things, those things are bottling up in us, and, it, and it's working at us. And the question is, are we dealing with them the right way? Or are we just letting that, that trial get the best of us? You see, some of us deal with these types of trials, and yet we don't know what to do next. We're so used to doing it on our own that we forget that, that God has a purpose that trial is there to teach us something. And we should be learning from that something. God doesn't bring these things into our life to break us. He's not looking to see how far he can, can bend you till you break. He's looking to teach you, mold you into the person God has called you to be. Well, James doesn't just say, guess what? You're going to face trials. Enjoy it. That would be like a dentist saying, well, you got a bunch of cavities. Enjoy it as I work on your mouth. That just doesn't happen. James gives us the keys to what to do next. James helps us understand that when we're facing with trials, what, we, what we've got to do. And so he tells us, first thing he tells us, we've got to pray for wisdom. If God's going to teach us something, if God's in it to teach us something, if there's a purpose behind it, then you and I need to be praying and asking God, what is it that you want to teach us? What is it you're trying to, to reveal to us that we need to hear? So James tells us to pray. Pray and ask for wisdom. And he tells us in our text that as we pray, we need to remember a couple of things. We need to remember that God gives wisdom to all believers. Hallelujah. Amen? God gives wisdom to all of us. God's, God's not a God who holds it back. He gives it to all. If you've flown very much, you, you might have noticed in the airport, if you go to, to, to Delta or someplace, they've got these rooms set up that sometimes I get jealous over. Because you can, as a, as, a, as a person who's flying with Delta, if you're at a certain level, you don't have to wait at the gate like the cattle call is there. You can go to this nice room, plus chairs, couches, a little extra food, a little nicer things. You can do all that. Now, let me explain. I, I used to get really jealous over that. Then it dawned on me, in order to get there, that means you have to fly a bunch. And you have to rack up the miles, you have to rack up the things. And, you know, I like to fly. Somebody said, you should have driven to California. And there ain't no way I want to drive to California, okay? The flight's long enough for me. I, 
I don't want to fly that much. I don't want to be in a tin can that long. And so those moments I go, yeah, they can, they can have their lush lounge. I'll wait till I get to, to wherever I'm going. But think about it this way. Everybody who passes the terminal has a ticket. But not everybody who has a ticket can go into that room. Jesus tells us over and over. James reminds us. I give wisdom to all. Not just the ones who, who did their daily devotional this morning. Not just the ones who went to church on Sunday. Not just the ones who, who served me, but to all believers. God is a good God who gives good gifts. Like Jesus said it this way, uh, Matthew chapter 7. He said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God gives good gifts. Well, James tells us he gives it willingly. He gives it willingly. But there's a qualifier here. There's a qualifier that has to take place in verse 6. That qualifier is simply this. You've got to believe. You have to believe. You cannot doubt. You've got to believe. When you pray to God, asking God for wisdom, do you believe? That's the key. When you ask God for help through a situation, do you believe God's going to help? Now hear me carefully. Just because you believe and just because you pray doesn't mean God answers the way you want him to answer. I prayed for years when I was in high school. God gave me the answers to the test that I didn't study for and don't even know the questions. It never worked. I believed he could do it. But he didn't show up that way. Do you believe? Do you truly believe or are there doubts? You see, the scriptures tells us that if you're doubting that you're unstable in your faith, God is a God who answers prayers. He may not answer it the way you want, but he answers them. A few months ago, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We came to this text in Mark 9. It's about this father who brings his son to Jesus to be healed. And we remarked at the father who said, help my unbelief. Because God answered his prayer. But there's a piece to that we've got to remember. Look with me at Mark chapter 9. Many times he was thrown into the fire or the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, the father said. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Catch what the father says. Immediately the boy's father cried out. I do believe. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Listen, 
there are moments in our prayers that we're going to struggle. We're going to have moments when, God, why, why are we experiencing this? What, what do we do? How come this keeps coming back? But the truth of the matter is, we have to believe. We have to believe that God has power. He may not act the way we want him to. He may not come through like we think he should. But we've got to believe that he can move heaven and earth. We've got to believe that he can do all things. The book of James, it's, it's funny, James has a nickname. The early church had a, gave him a nickname called Camel Knees. Camel Knees. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or Israel, you would understand. When I was in Israel, I rode a camel for a, for a moment. Well, he didn't ride them long, praise the Lord. Those things aren't the easy, the, the funnest things, the softest things to ride. But if you get on a camel, the camel gets down on its, on its, on its four legs, it's on, and you get on a box and you get on. Most camels are taller. You're not going to just jump on it like a horse. When the camel gets ready to stand up, hind legs go up first. When I got on my camel, he let out this noise to which a friend of mine who said he spoke camel said, one at a time, please, is what the camel was saying. But the camel made this noise and, and got up on his hind legs, and then on his front knees, he, he pushes up stands. You ever looked at a camel on their knees? They develop calluses, almost like a knee pad. Why? Because they're constantly on their knees, getting up. Whether it's gravel or blacktop like I was on, or out in the field of grass. Their knees were come to this point that they developed these calluses. James had the nickname Camel Knees because he was always on his knees praying. How's your prayer life? What are you, are you praying earnestly for God to move? Are you asking God to do only things God can do? Or are you telling God what he needs to do? Church, we need to be a praying church. Now here's, let me, let me say this up front. That doesn't happen from a program. That doesn't happen because we set a time we gather. A praying church happens because people pray at all times. We have to pray for wisdom. We live in a world that we need wisdom. We have more tension in the world than than in my lifetime has ever had. We need wisdom to know how to navigate these waters. We need wisdom to know how to help people understand that the gospel is the only true hope. We need to be praying for those moments. And so one of the things James tells us, in order to enjoy trials, in or, order to have a joy experience is you pray for wisdom. The second thing is, is you develop the right perspective. You develop the right perspective. Now you notice in our text, there were two people that were discussed there in the text. A, a, a poor man and a rich man. The poor man 
was told that, hey, what you need to do is exalt Christ. Listen, in this world, you may not have much, but you have Jesus. James says that's the, that's the greatest thing you can ever have, no matter what your, your bank account looks like, no matter how many tunics you've got hanging in the closet, no matter how many sandals you carry for your feet. If you have Christ, exalt him and him alone. And then the next one is a rich man. And we know the, the poor man is a believer because James calls him brother. He's a brother in Christ. Now the rich man, we don't have that title attached to him. So many scholars are divided as to, is this person a believer or is he someone who's lost? Well, it's a divide. Nobody really knows what James is thinking here. But it's real simple. If James is thinking that this rich person is a believer, then his words there are to believers, which, which let's be honest, a believer can have money. God blesses some people richly financially because he knows their heart and he knows they'll give it back for the kingdom. And so if that's the case, James is saying here to, about the rich man, Hey, boast only in Christ because you know that everything else withers away. Everything else fades. Everything else will be destroyed. The only hope is found in Christ. If, if the rich man is a lost person, then it's a conversation of condemnation to realize you're putting all your eggs in the basket of your bank account and that will be gone. It's all about right perspective. It's all about having that right perspective. Do you have that right perspective? Do you understand when you look at things, is it the right perspective or are you narrow-minded? This week, uh, Drew and I went to Elizabethtown for a couple of errands to do a few things. And my grandmother on, on Monday, she's 97, had fallen. And so Drew and I go by to see my grandmother. She's 97, lives in an assisted uh, living facility. And after we left there, I was, I called my mom, told her I'd gone by to visit and kind of gave her an update on how she was doing. And I thought to myself, here's my 97-year-old grandmother. Her eyesight is failing. She used to love to read. Her Bible was marked up. She's read, I don't know how many books, what devotionals, all sorts of things, but she cannot read any longer. And so she, there's, she doesn't read. Her, her hearing is going. In fact, when we were there, she'd taken her hearing aids out and I was having to talk really loud. So I'm sure everybody in the hall heard me. But she can't hear very well, even with them in. And between her eyesight and her hearing, she doesn't even watch TV. Her legs, at 97, year, 97, I'm not sure what she weighs. I think my right leg weighs more than she does. But her legs won't hold her. She can't stand up and walk very far. But as I left there, I thought, what a perspective she has on life. I walk in, Grandel, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. Life's good. Everything's good. 
How in the world can she have that perspective? Having to have people help her, having to have people take her wherever she's at, not able to do the things, she has that perspective for one reason. She knows who God is. She knows where she'll spend eternity. And that this old body that she has won't last long. But God will be glorified through her. What's your perspective? Last thing we see in this text is James gives us an idea of enduring, testing and temptations. He tells us that we're going to receive a, a crown of life that we will receive God's glory. That there's a reward waiting for us who endure the testing and the temptation. And you say, well, what's the reward? Is it a reward that I can have now or is it something I got to wait on? Is there a reward that gets me out of jail or at least the next temptation? Is there something that helps me? He gives us an idea. There's three there are three things. First, we grow in Christ. We grow in Christ. We grow in Christian character. We mature as believers. We get stronger in our faith and we begin to understand better as we go through trials. And second, we bring glory to God. You read your Bible from the Old Testament through the New Testament. When people bring glory unto God, he rewards them. He takes care of them. Joseph went through a life of misery. Thirteen years, he had ups and downs and all sorts of trials. He never stopped believing. He always brought glory to God. In the end, God rewarded him. In the end, God helped him. And the last thing we see James telling us, it's the crown of life. The ultimate reward is in heaven. The crown of life. How well do you do enduring and testing faith? How well are you getting through that? Listen, as a church, God wants to reward us. God wants to reward the church, but here's the thing the church has to understand. We've got to be faithful. We have to grow in Christian maturity. We have to develop godly characters. Not only that, but we've got to bring glory to God. We've got to bring glory to God in the, in the things that we do, the people we choose to lead us, and the, and the places we serve. It's got to be about bringing glory to God. And when those things happen, we'll see people receive the crown of life. I think everybody here knows this person. At seven, uh, at seven, this young man had to, to go to work. They lost their home. He got to, had to start helping with a family. At nine years old, his mother passed away. At 20, he lost a job 
working a storm. At 26, he went into business with a friend. Um, that friend died a few years later, but they had borrowed money on the business and, and he had to pay it back and that took a number of years to pay off. At 28, he decided to put his hat in the ring for an elected position. He lost three times before he ever won. And then he won, and the next time he was up for re-election, he lost again. He lost a son when he found, uh, he dated a girl. At four years, he dated her. At four years, he said, will you marry me? She said, no, don't, don't want to marry you. When he did finally marry, at, he lost a son at the age of four. 46, he tried again at a different election to be elected to a different position and lost. 47, he did the same thing. At 51, he finally became the president of the United States of America. Abraham Lincoln. And you know, the thing about Lincoln, he, he dealt with a lot of things. But do you realize, in the midst of the Civil War, he made Thanksgiving an annual holiday. Because he'd come to the place in his life, he understood adversity, he understood trials and tribulations, but he also understood how good God was. And so he began on October the 3rd, 1863, I believe. He announced we'll have an annual Thanksgiving day. How do you see things? Do you experience joy? Or are you living in your own world, trying to do it on your own? Would you stand with me? Your head bowed, your eyes closed this morning. The question I have before you today is, are you experiencing joy even in the trials? Have you come to a place in your life that you understand that God is greater than anything you are going to face? Or are you doubting? Have you come to that place in your life that you doubt that God loves you or hears you? Friend, this morning, let me remind you, God loves you unconditionally. He sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, today's the day. Don't let this day go. If you're here this morning and you are a Christ follower, but you have you've been living your life with so many trials that you're trying to fix on your own, today would you let go? Maybe today you come to the altar and pray. Maybe you come and asking for prayer. Maybe there's a decision on your heart. Maybe there's decision that you want to join our church family whatever the case may be today would you respond to a holy God who is greater than anything you face who loves you unconditionally 
would you respond as we sing?